Oh my goodness. It is early, early morning here as usual. And welcome to Office Hours. This is a special day. And I am beholden to so many people for this day, especially my co-host, the OG himself, the other DM, my twin brother from another mother himself, David Marino. Thank you so much uh, for everything you've done to make Office Hours not only the number one digital show on LinkedIn, Apple TV's prime gem of the first late night uh, TV show, which also aired and uh, premiered on Bloomberg for seasons, uh, which you were a part of as well. Uh, but now the podcast with uh, Blue Wire. So we'll have all 500 episodes uh, airing and all new episodes airing on Blue Wire, Office Hours, the podcast. So it's turned into quite a franchise. And before uh, I get into the other Beholden, I want to tell uh, and thank everyone on Beholden too. And first, Reluca and Gigi are always here producing the show. Our original producers, Matt Mendoza, uh, by the way. All of our hosts, Mike Diamond, Blaine Bartlett, Mike Mamola, uh, the OG crew uh, that created the show with the great talent that we've had. Uh, if we have 500 episodes and we have four guests, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, 2,000 of the biggest billionaires, millionaires, entrepreneurs, celebrities, athletes, and entertainers, not counting the TV show, which is over 150 episodes uh, of the TV show as well. Um, and I don't even know what season we're in on the TV show day, but I know we're filming back in November. So you better put it on to your calendar. The hardest part about the success of Office Hours is that uh, all of the hosts uh, became so active as well. Uh, it, it's hard to get them, the OGs, because they're so famous now. But uh, I'm beholden to my entire team, all of the producers, and especially my co-hosts, and especially DM Dave Marino. Thanks again. Man, thank you so much. The journey of doing Office Hours from the start to finish, 500, 500 episodes, is, is ridiculous and amazing. And just a testament to, to you, brother, and all the people that you've connected. And and, and behold, and I'm sorry, me and Dave, and Dave are just going to love each other for the first five minutes of the show. Uh, but uh, really excited to have you here on the 500th episode. Thank you, everybody, for watching it. And, and obviously, the team at DME has been great. Yeah, this is the Beholden episode, the 500th episode. So I had to bring on the actual Beholden himself, Brad Holden. He is co-founder and CEO of Resilient Life Sciences. Resilient.bio is where you can find him. Welcome to Office Hours, Brad. Thanks, Dave. I'm super happy to be here. It's it's so funny because um, you guys were the winner of the Richard King Mellon Foundation. When I first saw him, I do a show called Game Set Life with Rick Macy, uh, who's from King Richard. And so I mm -hmm. almost got a little confused about that as well. Um, but social impact investment is a, a huge uh, area of investment today, thank goodness. And uh, I have been way back when, when I was CEO of Lee Steinberg, it was an extreme rare thing that people actually considered impact in investment. And now it's one of my top five criteria we have credibility, emotional attachment, reasons, impacts, and capabilities. Those are my five investment criteria. Um, and you seem to cover uh, them all in life sciences, obviously, is an area, as we had the pandemic, uh, that is at the forefront. But even more than the forefront, I think a greater pandemic is the opioid pandemic. 
And I think the unsung pandemic itself, we, I know lost a lot of people in the COVID pandemic, but uh, there's over 80,000 deaths per year, per year yeah. and growing because of opioids. And these are innocent people that maybe had a back injury from playing tennis and they had no idea uh, of the power of these terrible drugs. Um, and so I, I was hoping one, you could update me on, you know, whereas you guys secured a half a million dollars in funding with Brazilian Life Sciences, uh, how big the problem is that you're addressing uh, with the wearable medical devices to combat opioid overdoses. Yeah, great. And thank you for the introduction to the problem there, David. It's a terrible thing in, in this country, right? So it's the leading cause of death for Americans under 50, opioid overdose. And what we've found as we've dug into this, the, the epidemic here, is that over 70 to 80% of these deaths occur without anybody else around the person who overdosed. So you might have heard of naloxone, uh, known as the brand name Narcan, which is an incredible drug, very powerful at reversing an opioid overdose and can save somebody's life if they experience one. If nobody's in that room, then there's no way to save that person's life. But what they say is you can't Narcan yourself because you're generally going to be unconscious. So if the majority of these deaths are occurring without anybody nearby, we need to find a way to automate the detection of an overdose and the delivery of the drug. And that's what we're building at Resilient Life Science is we have a wearable medical device. It's worn on the user's abdomen. Um, I should say this is still in development, so it's not on the market yet. Uh, we still need to do a lot of work, but it'll be worn on the abdomen. It'll monitor the user for signs of an overdose, and that's through their heart rate, respiratory rate, their, their breathing patterns, and their oxygen saturation. Based on that, we can predict whether or not an overdose is occurring. If we see that happening, we'll sound an alarm. And if that alarm is not silenced, then the device delivers a dose of naloxone to save that person's life. Wow. Brad, that's, that's truly amazing. And I'm not sure everybody fully appreciates just how serious the opioid pandemic is. Um, the numbers are staggering. Um, when we look at America as a country, and we, we think about all the ways we treat various illnesses with, with prescription drugs. And then we see uh, on the flip side, the movements uh, around food as medicine and you know, healthier lifestyle, healthier eating. And, you know, you know, hopefully that could be something that can help combat that as we move forward. And then you also think about a world where Dave and I spent a ton of time is, is professional sports. Um, mm. th there have been numerous ath athletes. Um, that have, you know, pushed back on the practices of, you know, shooting up a Toradol and, and giving it, put them on different prescriptions to just go out there and feel, feel nothing, right? Um, so number one, uh, great, great stuff. Like, awesome that you're doing this for the world, uh, for, for America, for, for everybody here. Uh, but number two, talk to us a little bit about the process, about the technology. How did you, um, how does it work, number one? Um, what protections, if anything, do you have on it? And are there any potential future uses outside of how it's currently being used? Yeah, great questions. And I'll, I'll start with the, the inspiration for it. So, no point, Dave. I guess Dave forgot to give me a score, but uh, I was too busy eating and drinking so on the 500th episode. <laughs> They're part of my tradition at 4 a.m. So, <laughs> awesome. thank you, Dave. Oh, and you got your point there. So, 
Um, the inspiration actually came from a, a company I, I worked at before I went into business school and then the tech sector. We were developing a wearable medical device for patient monitoring, right? And now you, many, many of us have Apple watches, right? Or, or Fitbits that are tracking a lot of the vital signs that you would get at a hospital bedside. So the technology and the ability to sense these things is actually pretty common now and with really well-proven technology. So what we're using is, is the proven technology of PPG sensing and accelerometry. And from that, you can measure somebody's respiratory rate, their oxygen saturation, their total breathing over the course of a minute. And the way opioid overdose kills somebody is it slows their breathing to the point where they stop getting oxygen into their blood. And that's actually what causes death. So the same thing that actually leads to the death is what we can measure to determine whether or not somebody is experiencing the overdose and needs the the um, the antidote there, the naloxone. So we are looking for that slowed breathing, that decreased respiratory rate. It's called opioid-induced respiratory depression. And when we detect that, that's when we know to intervene with a subcutaneous injection of the drug. So there's an auto-injector built into the system. You mentioned patent protection. So we have um, filed for a utility patent application for the specific design to our device. If you were to do a Google patent search, you'll see there have been other ideas in this area. Um, so what is important for us to do is to really protect the approach that we're taking to detecting in the design of the device. You also asked about other applications, right? So when we think about this, what we're looking for is something that can be detected with non-invasive measurements and then an emergency condition, I should say, that can be detected with a non-invasive measurement as well as treated with a subcutaneous injection. So while we're really focused on the opioid epidemic right now, since it is costing our country and society so many lives every year, every day really, there are other applications that we'll look towards in the future. Epilepsy is one of them. So detecting movement patterns associated with a seizure and administering a anticonvulsant. There are potential uses for um, heart attack as well. So an anticoagulant in, in the case of a heart attack. And we're gonna do more research in the future, but there is this platform that we're building here that is non-invasive sensing added to a subcutaneous drug delivery system. And there's a lot of potential for that in the future. And as, as I'm chewing there, uh, I'm looking at your background and, you know, I just got back from Sydney and Bali uh, and one of the common questions is about America and the, I love the international perception of America because Americans are very hard on ourselves, you know, the make America great again. Why don't we just make America better than we are? Uh, because this is a goddamn great place excuse my language. And when I look at your background, it's the proof that there's no other country in the world uh, where you can be the savior of the world, no matter who you are and where you were born. And when I say that is the entrepreneurs are going to save this world. Uh, there, there's no doubt in my, my mind. We just have to give them enough time to figure out how to turn plastic into food or fill up the hole in the atmosphere or whatever else we can do. And you're living proof of that in your background as a former Marine and what that taught you. 
graduate of Carnegie Mellon, which is one of the best entrepreneurial schools in the world. And then the Harvard side of things, uh, which is academically, you know, our greatest professors uh, are at Harvard. Um, and here you're combating not only op opioid overdose, but a mechanism of detection and delivery. You know, and that's where, you know, imagine uh, with fentanyl or heart attacks, or you, you listed off several that detection and delivery can be such a powerful tool to save the world. Uh, and so it's not just, you know, the number one cause of death with opioids. It's imagine, like you said, heart attacks and fentanyl and how many millions of people around the world could be saved by an entrepreneur. And only in America can you go and be a Marine and learn what they teach you there, go to Carnegie Mellon and learn what they teach you there, and go to Harvard, and that combines into creating the world, uh, you know, incredible, award-winning, funded company of delivery and de detection and delivery. I was hoping just to inspire people here in the, in the last couple of minutes, you know, what did you learn from the Mar Marines, Carnegie Mellon, and Harvard that allowed you to think of this world-changing delivery device? Awesome. Great question. Um, and your, I, I guess the way you frame that reminds me of how fortunate <laughs> I am and lucky I am. I'm not competitive at all. Here as well. um, <laughs> you know, I, I think the, the things that I think have really throughout all of those experiences resonated for me are, are first of all, hard work. Um, Carnegie Mellon, I believe we, we pride ourselves at, at that school of, uh, working incredibly hard in that school right the the, the motto is my heart is in the work that, that that's person. that's funny coming from a marine because i thought you would talk about the marines teaching you hard work but it's carnegie bell and i love i love it thank you that's awesome yeah. well there's different kinds of hard work too and absolutely hard work in the marine corps actually i went to carnegie mellon before the marine corps I went into the marine corps after that and they certainly uh showed a different side of hard work on, on the physical and the endurance side of things um and creativity too. So there were times in the Marine Corps where you know, outside the wire in Afghanistan, we tried a dozen things that we thought was going to uh, work uh, for, for getting vehicles out of stuck sand or whatever the situation was. And just being persistent and trying one thing after another until something works was a, a key for our success. And my success in school, our success as a unit in Afghanistan. And I think if you talk to any entrepreneur in addition to hard work and persistence, but that creativity and being willing to accept new ideas, try them, and continue iterating on things until you find success, uh, that, that's a theme, I think, throughout my life. And for many successful people, it is critical to, to building something that, that makes a difference is being willing to learn a lot and try a lot of new things on the way. Awesome. And as I had the pregnant pause there. What a great way. We are beholden to Brad Holden uh, for a great experience. Um, you will see this detection and delivery mechanism someday, and you'll remember the 500th episode of Office Hours where we presented the incredible entrepreneur, Brad Holden. We all will be beholden to the millions of lives that he will save. Co-founder and CEO of Resilient Life Sciences, resilient.bio. Check them out. Uh, it's an incredible uh, mechanism and I'm just uh, blown away and thank you for everything that you're doing Brad and congratulations 
on winning the Richard King Mellon Foundation's Social Impact Investment Pitch Competition. I'm hoping you will also join me on Apple TV uh, to uh, join our pitch competition where you can win $50,000 of cash and prizes on Apple. Uh, we'd love to have you. We're filming in July and August, so make sure you reach back out to our team. We'd love to have you on. Absolutely. That would be an honor. And David and David, thank you so much for your time, and we'll look forward to talking again. All right. Thanks, Congratulations, Brad. Brad. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, thank you. Tearing up already, man? Yeah, I got, you know, the travel tears. Uh, is I going to jump on another plane to go to VCon today? So uh, anybody out there want to join us at uh, VCon? We'll be there today, tomorrow, and the next day. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, my dear friend, is really uh, bent over backwards for us there. So we'll be on all kinds of stages. We have the official podcast booth of VCon as well. And most importantly, Friday night, an incredible Incredible VIP dinner. We have Jim Quick and Michael Chandler, Austin Eckler, Jeff Hoffman. Uh, just I'm, I'm forgetting tons of people, but uh, oh, Tom Billu. We got the after party with him. So come, it's not too late. Come join us at VCon. We'll be doing a meetup on Saturday, and I'm so excited too because Dave. I don't know if you know this, but my daughter, uh, you know the one who's living in New York, she's flying in for VCon. But my other daughter who lives in Indiana, her last day will be Saturday in Indiana before she moves to New York. So you got to take care of uh, your two new neighbors uh, when in Manhattan. You got those two young girls. I'm counting on you to be their big brother or Uncle Dave, nonetheless. All right, let's bring on Martin Rand. Um, as I'm rambling on, co-founder and CEO of Pactum AI. Uh, welcome, Martin. Hey, David. It's good to be here. Well, we uh, certainly uh, are excited to have you. Uh, Dave and I both have law degrees. I'm a recovering lawyer, and he's one of the best lawyers in the country. So together, we equal a pretty good lawyer. Um, and alone, Dave is exceptional. But negotiation uh, uh, between business business uh, and their suppliers is a huge area of law. Uh, there, there's more difficult situations uh, that happen. And it's funny because I was just thinking about in contract negotiation, Dave being one of the greatest sports lawyers as well. And uh, I may have had a, a few negotiations in my lifetime. Uh, I sure wish I had the servant of AI that could automate my contract negotiation. Uh, what does this impactful Pactum AI do when it automates a, a negotiation because negotiations are so emotional. I'm curious when it takes the emotions out of the negotiation, uh, how it works that both parties feel satisfied in less than 15 minutes. And, and, and David, I will, I will ask, you mentioned in the last session that uh, you were not competitive at all. Uh, did, you, did you like negotiations? What did you think of negotiations? So it's changed for me. So everything in my life, up until my wife uh, changed my life, and uh, subsequently I, I lost over $100 million and went bankrupt in 2008. But my whole life was a negotiation, a trade, a quid pro quo. Uh, and so I didn't like it at that time. Yeah. I, I didn't like the conflictual nature, the zero, I called it the zero sum game that there had to be winners and losers uh, because even though I was competitive, I didn't feel good when I won. And I certainly didn't feel good when I lost. Uh, and, you know, over the last 17 years, I've developed a value add 
uh, philosophy or perspective of negotiation. Uh, and so, so you nailed my point because I've been dreaming about something that could automate uh, the negotiation part without the zero sum game and yeah. just provide pragmatic analysis of, hey, here's how both parties can win. Yeah. And I bet the exciting part about negotiations uh, is also that it's such a short time frame where the biggest value can be created, right? Um, so, so yeah, what uh, Pactum does is we use AI to negotiate supplier deals for the largest enterprises in the world, such as Walmart and Maersk. Um, and, and the AI bot goes through tens of thousands of suppliers that people can't negotiate anyway, because those companies have uh, sometimes over 100,000 suppliers and uh, unlocks hundreds of millions of dollars. And as you pointed out, negotiations are really something special and they're really excited. And we're all excited about negotiations because in, a, in an e-auction, or in a bargaining situation, it is a zero-sum game, as you said. So if you win, I lose. However, negotiations are different. In a negotiation, if done right, I am incentivized to give you something that you value, so you would give me back something that I value. And we can both walk out of the door with more than we had previously. And imagine a bot now doing that 10,000 times over, unlocking value for both sides. So so this is this is why we're excited, and this is incredible that now AI can do this. Martin, great stuff. I mean, my, my Dave knows like we're the same of the same mind. My mind is like just racing with with potential uses because uh, I haven't even thought about AI in negotiation, right? And all the places in which it could potentially be, you know, obviously applied and impact them is is solving a massive issue in a massive industry. Um, and is well suited to do that, but even down to like negotiating, uh, you know, a new role, um, and, and and you know, thinking about AI applications to that. And the sports one is is obvious, but to go back to supply chain, which um, when you think about supply chain, you think about everything in in transit and the Panama Canal, and you know, just all of the things that have to con consistently yeah. go right for yeah. everything to move, right? And I don't think everybody appreciates that. What yep. sort of analysis and data is the AI pulling from and, 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 and what happens when, or, or are there times when either party would push back on sort of the negotiated deal terms that the AI produces? So I'll bring you an example of Maersk since you started talking about the supply chain. So Maersk is the second largest shipper in the world, but they don't own almost any trucks. But you see a lot of trucks outside with the big Maersk logo and the container on a truck, right? So all of these moves they have to procure. And we are doing these negotiations. Uh, now the trucking market is extremely fragmented. You have a lot of mom and pop shops with, with two trucks, essentially. Um, so what we do is uh, we need to fill a lane. Let's say we need to move 10 containers from A to B. We, we reach out to the truckers and we negotiate the deal. Previously, how it was done is that uh, an operator would pick up the phone, uh, would call three truckers. Two of them would, would maybe pick up the phone and they would do uh, the, a deal uh, with one of them. Now, a machine does it completely differently. As you pointed out, uh, uh, 
about the data, the underlying data which it uses, uh, a machine has unlimited time to go through as much data as needed. So it compares similar routes, uh, it compares similar truckers, it finds out which trucker would be ideal for this, uh, for this route. Uh, it checks the commodity price indices like energy prices, like fuel prices, and it doesn't go in uh, and ask for the price. It already knows the price. So it says, hey, uh, trucker, uh, uh, would you say a good price for this route is this? Uh, and the trucker might say, well, uh, I, I think it's, it's more expensive than that. Okay, and then, then the bot uh, will say, all right, but why don't we talk about exclusivity for this route? Let's say we, for, for this single route, we assign an exclusivity for six months for you. What do you say? Uh, maybe, the, maybe the trucker is not there yet. Then we might say, okay, how about this? If you agree to this deal and the next one, uh, we'll reach out to you before everyone else. So you get to pick and choose the best uh, deal flow uh, for yourself. And so that's, even in a even in a negotiation which initially seems you know what's there to negotiate aside price even there we're able to find the tradable terms that expand the pie for both and in fact i called one of the truckers just recently and asked hey i i can see the value that maersk is getting out of this what are you getting out of this and and they said look i'm getting more business now uh, the business is better because it's more targeted towards me. It's the routes I like to do. And most importantly, before I had to wait until people came back to me and solidified the deal, I had to keep uh, capacity on standby. Oh, that was very expensive for me. Now the bot tells me right away, so it's it's cheaper. So so they, they value it a lot. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, there's several things spinning in my head as David's. One is, you know, the other spinoff businesses that come from the analysis that Pactum provides. So, for example, for Maersk, now that they've identified routes and efficiencies of routes and recognition of routes, you can utilize an advertising scheme. You know, coming from a marketing guy, the instantaneous thing I think about is imagine the amount of revenue that Maersk can provide. Uh, by offering uh, wrap trucks because now they have the acknowledgement of the routes and the timing and they can go ahead and do the analysis of how many millions of people yeah. are going to see the truck. So you have these moving billboards and you, you now have a mechanism to show the data for advertising. The second thing that happens uh, as well in the negotiation is it allows a key component of negotiation. Uh, I have a philosophy about AI. I'm one of the few people that at the highest level has worked in Web 1, Web 2, Web 2.5, and now Web 3. Uh, but throughout all the evolution of the web uh, and AI being component now of Web 3, you know, technology is a servant. And I go back to my Westlaw days when my mom told me the Internet's a fad. And, you know, Justice Scalia himself told me that nobody would ever, uh, ever do research on a computer. You needed books. Uh, but AI is probably the greatest servant that is given worldwide to everyone, it, but it's not a master. In, in the end, you need someone like Dave Marino, a master negotiator, or you who went to the master of negotiation uh, 
the Stanford's program, Negotiation Mastery. Uh, so we got wow. Harvard and Stanford. Harvard? Yeah. Oh, good. Because Stanford rejected me twice. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, I, I feel much better about the Harvard. My my, my team has Stanford on there. They're, they're just trying to provoke me, Dave, on the 500th episode. They're, they're, they're hitting my insecurities. Uh, but I will tell you, getting rejected from Stanford, I'm in the majority of the people on earth uh, that get rejected. So I don't feel that bad. And they hire me to speak now and teach. But more importantly, in the mastery of negotiation, it's the human being that still needs to be able to articulate the quantitative value, regardless of how the quantitative value uh, has been derived. And so, you know, I want to point out because people have fears about AI where they should have a different perception of AI that it's enhancing your capability. So now Dave Marino is like a, a ninja when it comes to negotiation because he has so many different data points to provide more value in a value add system, not a zero sum game that the human mind and capacity could never have found. Uh, or if they did, it would be so untimely that the negotiation would have passed, especially in a perishable market like delivery and, and last mile business like Maersk is in. Um, how have you seen as a servant the value of your AI? Wh where's the greatest value uh, for your uh, solution today so that people aren't afraid of this, losing their job, but instead Dave Marino's like, now I'm just better at my job. I'm not worried about losing my job as a pr premier negotiator in the world. Well, uh, no one has lost their job uh, because of Pactum. And in fact, uh, procurement and merchandising teams have been cut down so thin that they can barely negotiate strategic deals. But as you pointed out, in strategic deals, he, the human ingenuity, thinking outside the box, being able to use your charisma to influence uh, 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 the other, going to play golf together. This is all the things that, that AI can not do. And so people should negotiate strategic deals, uh, but they don't have time. So we're, we're now negotiating the, the other 90% of the, the deals so people can focus on the deals that really move the needle. Beautiful. Uh, un unbelievable two for two on the technology side of things, Dave. We have two entrepreneurs from Harvard, by the way. Give them their little shout out. Uh, the co-founder and CEO of Pactum AI, just leading the way as we were beholden to Brad Holden. Martin Rand, uh, thank you so much. I can't wait to utilize uh, this in the marketing side because what most people don't realize is that data that is utilized and analyzed by AI uh, provide so many marketing opportunities, uh, as I suggest. So I'm using my lens to add value as well beyond just negotiation in you know, supply chain or whatever other areas. Uh, check it out if you want to save millions, if not billions of dollars. Pactum.com is the place to go. Thanks for joining me, Martin. Thanks so much, David. Great job. Thanks, Martin. That's amazing. That's Two for two amazing, right? Well, yeah. if you thought the first two were amazing, we have Steve McKee here, co-founder of McKee Wallwork, McKeeWallwork.com. And uh, how could we have a 500th episode without bringing on an author of a significant book? Uh, and the book is Turns. And there's no better way to describe today and the future is Turns, where business is won and lost. Uh, welcome to Office Hours, our 500th episode, by the way, Steve. Uh, welcome. What an honor to be here. Thank you. 
yeah, we are very honored to have you. Um, just in the the title turns, you know, I joked around during the pandemic, and I know it wasn't a laughing matter, but uh, you know, so many people told me as an executive coach from the Fortune 500 companies, Dave, you know, the world's just so uncertain. You know, what wh what should I do right now? And I said, first of all, the only thing that is certain is uncertainty and if anybody yep. out there in my 500 episodes and over 2,000 guests if anybody out there can tell me exactly what's going to happen tomorrow i'm not the smartest man on earth but i know how to make billions of dollars if you could tell me exactly what's going to happen tomorrow but that's not going to happen and so happen. Uh, you know you've really created a, a book to do a deep dive you know a physical historical metaphysical which i love uh, through different lenses of science, history, politics, sports, which is also something I love, um, that shows you um, how best we win and lose business regardless of what's happening outside of us. And so, yeah. go ahead. I would say absolutely. And the, the crazy thing is uh, when I started this, uh, this journey, my thought was, you know, life is a series of straightaways interrupted by turns. And I've come to the conclusion that life is a series of turns, only occasionally interrupted by a smooth stretch of road. Uh, yeah, it's amazing as we get older how the paradigm shifts, right? Like instead of getting more happy, more healthy, more wealthy, more worthy, it's like I am happy, healthy, wealthy, worthy. What am I doing to interfere with it? Uh, you know, is a major paradigm shift that is aligned with what we're talking talking about. So when we're making these better decisions uh, with a life of turns that occasionally give us the freedom of, of a, of a straightaway. If we use a, you know, racing analogy <laughs> as I'm going to Indy today, uh, you know, how do we, or what principles do we utilize in the series of turns that creates life circumstances? You know, a great analogy is if you think about back when you learned to drive, uh, when you first got behind the wheel of the car, whether, uh, officially or kind of stole your dad's car, like I did, uh, it was really, really difficult to keep it between the lines. You're, you're panicked, you know, you're white knuckling it and your arms hurt because you just don't know how to manage this thing. But of course, over time, it becomes second nature to you. And we're sort of reverse engineering that in uh, turns where business is won and lost. The whole idea is if you can examine how turns happen, not only the physics of turns, but the timing of turns and the consequences of turns, um, it'll, it'll give you better muscle memory when you need it in the moment in business to be able to do it. And so we look at, um, there's, there's several principles. The first thing I did was look at the world of physical turns, the physics of turns, you know, the friction and torque and inertia and all the things that go into turning a car or a bicycle or a motorcycle or, or what have you. Every one of those has an, an analogy in a business turn. Uh, and it's fascinating just to think, just to take that one exercise to think, okay, I'm, I'm facing a turn right now. What, where's the inertia? You know, where's this thing naturally going if we don't do something? Where's the cliff? What are the points of friction? Good friction and bad friction. I mean, friction can be good and friction can be bad. <clears throat> How do we increase our torque, our ability to get through the turn? Just asking questions like that is just a whole new toolbox for business leaders to use to make decisions. Steve, super duper interesting. I wonder if, you know, your book populates Martin's AI to help them make negotiations. Um, and when I when I read the description of your book, I, I immediately think of like the sapiens of business. And I know Dave understands the sapiens reference and that super dense but great book. Um, you know, obviously when folks read a book and I'm a part of a book club, it's always, you know, what was your takeaway? What was the biggest lesson you learned? What was the biggest surprise? 
and going through the research and writing this book, you know, you have a different perspective. So what was your greatest takeaway in writing this book and, and, and going through the research and the process and, and, and creating it? Such a great question. Um, I was, I did a, a year of research and I was really flabbergasted by uh, how all, all turns are interrelated. You, you just can't separate one turn from another. One leads into another. Um, there's no way to, to distinguish the consequences of one turn entirely by itself. And so whether it's sports, business, history, religion, you name it, every turn is interrelated. And it gave me a real respect for uh, one, the things that we can control. As I'm fond of saying, you can always initiate a new turn, which is sort of the, the helpful agency part of it. But then a humility for the things that we can't control. And that is all of the consequences of all of our turns. So I was just amazed at the kind of the glorious beauty of, uh, of how the world, how God has created the world to be uh, all interrelated and interactive. And there's a real humility in that. And looking at that radical humility, uh, we do talk about how business is won and lost in the book. Um, and so there is a, has to be a framework or a criteria around winning business and why we lose business. What are the things that what are some of the things you reveal in the book about winning business and why people lose business? Well, the, um, yeah, the, the main thing, the, the overarching thing is, is turns are where business is won and lost, just like in sports, pick your sport on the, on the curve and track or uh, uh, at the wall in the pool or uh, on the, on the transition game in basketball. That's where things uh, or rebound, or rebounds. It's, it's the boards. It's the boards, right? In basketball, yeah, That's where the chaos is happening. <laughs> And so if you can be prepared to, um, like take, take basketball, for example, the ball careens off the rim and the transition game, they call it the transition game, right? Kicks in and teams that are good at the transition game are going to get a lot of quick, free, uh, uh, easy points. So the key in business is to recognize that uh, stasis is not, is not the norm. Turns are the norm. So companies should be oriented towards that. AI is a perfect example. It's the new turn that all of us are having to cope with. And none of us know yet. We're all trying to figure out what does this mean to my business? And if you have a posture that is embracing of turns and that is um, aware of the forces in a turn and aware of the timing of a turn, uh, it's just like practicing the transition game in basketball. You're going to be you're going to be much more able to have your business pass the pass the other guy on the curve. That's just it's the art of managing change. So you might ask what business you're in. Whatever business you're in, if you're in the business of uh, navigating turns, you're going to be more successful. You know, to go back to Boardman, remember Boardman gets paid. Uh, wise words of Kawhi Leonard, who played in San Diego. So I know Dave is always aware of what Kawhi. I was thinking Dennis. I was thinking Dennis Rodman. Uh, that that's all he could do was board, but uh, yet fine. he did yeah, pretty well. A role to play in every organization, right? Yeah, <laughs> you can't all be MJ. Um, I can't all be Dave Marino, so that's even worse. <laughs> See, in, interesting stuff. Um, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is, and I know you, you, you touch on, you know, some of the big, like, climactic shifts in business throughout history, you know, the different recessions and housing crises. Is there anything about what you learned in this process that you feel could be uh, an actual adequate predictor of these things? <laughs> I do, I do recall in the book, one of the things I say is the business cycle is entirely predictable, except for its timing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
we know that you know we're going to go up and down. We're going to have recession. We're going to have growth. If you could, if you knew the timing, as you said, David, you'd be set. You'd be fine. Right. <laughs> uh, we don't know the timing, but we do know we do know that it's going to happen. And so you take a, you know Warren Buffett's advice, where it's be greedy when everybody else is 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 scared. You know, buy on the dips and those sorts of things. There's there's a principle there that I think is 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 truism of all turns is when you're entering a turn, what is the natural thing to do? And I always analogize it to say being in a car. Natural thing to do when you enter a turn is to hit the brakes, tighten up, and maybe take it too slow. And that's fine if you want to be safe, but it's not really fine because in, in business, you, you're going to get beat. And if you get beat, that's no good. So you have to let your shoulders relax, go the appropriate speed through the turn. You have to be ready to brake, but you want to be looking for that advantage and that opportunity. And that's really the key. It's it's the art. You know, we work with a lot of companies uh, in my firm in a variety of industries. And you take like tech companies, they're they're ready for the turns. <clears throat> and roadway engineers will tell you that the best way to build um, a turn in a road is through a series of small turns because that makes the driver aware and paying attention rather than a straightaway in a really big turn. So the tech industry is like that, that everybody in the tech industry knows that whatever they come up with, whatever is new is only going to be new for a period of time. And then it's going to be duplicated or, or surpassed with new technology. Whereas in some of the older industries with older business models, whether it's funeral homes or real estate brokers or uh, insurance agents, uh, they can easily be asleep at the wheel and think that they're just on cruise control because they haven't, they don't see change as much as those in the tech industry do. And what could happen there is they could easily just, when that turn comes, they could get run off the road, um, just not paying attention to it. So it's just that awareness. Um, it's just like, and you know, we, we're sports guys. We talk about basketball when you're, when you're moving your offense down the court, <clears throat> you want to run your play and you want to score, but you always have to be prepared for the transition game. You can't let that errant rebound take you by surprise. You know, uh, Steve, I, I love your column in business week. You've seen you in every major media outlet. So I was excited to have you on our 500th episode, uh, here as well, but you know, the core theme of the smart brief that you do with business week uh is leadership mm. and i think one of the more difficult things of being a leader today and i was blessed to be forced into leadership uh early in my career when i graduated law school and we merged with thomson reuters and all of the other leaders you know exited as we sold for 3.4 billion they were old enough to exit and go on their way i was you know too young i still needed to work even though we exited so uh you know, I was forced into leadership, but there was a lot of turns in my career, but they didn't happen overnight. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't have, I, I was on top of technology. So I knew my 7,000 sales reps at West Publishing. I, I knew the a measurement of productivity, but today we have no idea what the true capacity of productivity is. Um, what do you think some of the key uh, criteria are as a leader today? What what should I be looking for as a leader today? Uh, because the turns are coming way faster. Like you said, it's just, you know, a few moments and minutes of straightaway that I get where I used to get a long straightaway in a short turn. Now I get a short uh, straightaway in longer turns and more turns. Yeah. Um, if I could coin a phrase, people who are continually learning are always going to do better at turning. Uh, that's that's what we want Maybe as leaders. Some things Post never change. There, guys. <laughs> right? Character never changes. Um, intelligence never changes. Um, the truth. 
the truth <laughs> never there's some things that never change and then the world around us is changing ever faster we we, we all see that uh, and so it's really a matter of learning um, to go back to the ai example you know in my company we are committed to trying to we're not getting derailed by it we're committed to trying to ask the question of not be, not feeling threatened by it like so many companies are but saying this is coming one way or another how can we embrace it to navigate the turn and i think uh, leaders lead right you ask about leadership that's what leaders do and so they step into uncomfortable situations and navigate and what turns what the book is is really all about is helping leaders understand better why the trees are blowing by them really fast and why the road is shifting and uh, it's raining and all, all the elements that go into navigating a turn help leaders understand the dynamics of that better so that they can navigate the car better. So really the book is, it, it came out of my smart brief column on leadership because it's, it's an attempt to help leaders better lead by learning. As I said, he who learns is he who turns. I love it. You can't find inside of you what you uh, you can't find inside of you what you want outside of you. And uh, there are eight insightful principles in the book, Turns. Uh, if you want to win business instead of lose, where business is won and lost are in the turns. And if you are learning, and a great place to learn is this book and also all the different media outlets where Steve McKee is. Uh, what a great guest for our 500th episode. Check out the book, Turns, Where Business is Won and Lost. Thanks for joining us. Please promise us you'll come back again. We won't have to wait another 500 episodes, I hope. You bet. It was an honor. A lot of fun, too. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. All right. We got our cleanup hitter coming up. It's been an incredible episode here on Office Hours. It's the 500th episode. We've had over 2,000 guests, not counting the TV show, the podcast, uh, but uh, the longest running show here on LinkedIn, 500 episodes. Uh, un unbelievable, David. And no better way to uh, to do it than with my co-host, the DMDM show, uh, Dave Marino. Let's bring on another best-selling author. Uh, he's a cross-section leader, conservationist, and entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs will save the world. Uh, welcome, Charles Kahn. Uh, thanks for having me, David. It's really great to be here. Honored to be here on your 500th uh, show. Fantastic. It is fantastic to have you because one of the key components or characteristics uh, that I look for in people and trying to surround myself with the right people and the right idea is radical humility. So when I found your book, The Imperfectionist, I said, wow, I wish uh, in my 20s and 30s I could have read The Strategic Mindset for Uncertain Times. And you can see my producers, uh, Gigi and Raluca, has done a great job of thematically putting everyone together, David, by the way. Uh, they're really top of the top. Um, but you've done decades of research uh, to find out the correct mindset for the turning and learning, uh, as our friend uh, previously mentioned. Um, what are the strategic mindsets for today uh, for the radically humble people to know that uh, imperfectionists can succeed? Yeah, can and, and perhaps are the only people who succeed, right? I mean, I think, you know, we all grew up in a world where um, we were taught that strategy depends on industry structure and the conduct of players um, in industries. And I think that model's really been thrown out the window completely in a world that's changing as quickly. And I, I did listen to the previous uh, uh, author changing as quickly as it is now with artificial intelligence, uh, chat GPT, programmable biology, and 
the rise of super competitors like an Apple or an Amazon or a Google, the idea that there's specific industry guardrails and you just compete inside your industry is absurd, right? And so when we're competing now at the, at the speed of business, I, I think the, it's critical that we accept um, the idea that we're going to make moves that are experimental, that we learn from, and that sometimes fail. And inside big companies, um, they're paralyzed. People, people know that the old regime is thrown out. They know that annual strategic planning cycle doesn't work anymore, but they don't know what to replace it with. Sometimes they're replacing it with, you know, jumping in to make a crazy acquisition, but we know how that works. So what we, what we recommend after all the research uh, for the book is that folks pay attention to five things. <clears throat> One, being curious. And it sounds incredibly obvious, but it's amazing how, you know, folks, once they're, especially they've achieved something, really lose that curiosity. And you think about, so when Edwin Land invented the instant camera, it was just a curious question from his daughter that led to that invention. Why can't I see the picture, daddy? And as we get older, we forget to be curious. We lose our curiosity. The second thing is, is the ability to see things through multiple perspectives. We call it dragonfly eye because the dragonflies have 3,000 of these really cool lenses that they see through. And it's an analogy for us for making sure that before you jump and do something strategically, you think about it from the perspective of your suppliers, your partners, your customers, and maybe potential entrants. And so if you think about a business like Invisalign, which is now worth $20 billion, that came from two uh, Stanford college students, not from, not from the existing orthodontist market or dentist market, because they looked at this from the perspective of the actual patient, and they noticed that their retainers actually move their teeth. So that's, that's seeing things through multiple perspectives. The third thing um, we call occurrent behavior, which is making sure to collect your own data rather than just relying on existing data. So become an experimenter, right? And, you see this all the time, like SpaceX has lowered the cost of sending a kilogram into space by 95%. How did it do that? You know, it went from like NASA was doing two or three launches a year. SpaceX is doing 20. And sometimes the rockets have unplanned uh, rapid disassembly. Right? <laughs> Historically proven as well. Right. But, so they, but they know that's going to happen and they're willing to let it happen. And that never happened with NASA. And by that experimentation, they've been able to do remarkable things, right? Um, <clears throat> the fourth thing is making sure to not be arrogant enough to think that all the smarts are inside your organization, right? And that, that's the way big companies have historically worked. Bill Joy, who is the founder of uh, Sun Microsystems, he said, hey, the smartest guys aren't in your room. They're, they're someone else's garden. And that's one of the reasons he invented open source uh, software development. Today, we can use gamified uh, platforms for crowdsourcing intelligence, right? So when the Nature Conservancy wants to develop a new system for making sure that we don't catch endangered species like tuna fish at sea, they work with Kaggle to set up a competition for video-based recognition of endangered fish species. They didn't have those capabilities inside a big conservation organization, but they brought those in with a $150,000 prize. And now they're saving these endangered tuna species. You know, it's just an example, like AI swarms can do the same things. We can be much smarter working together, working outside our organizations than just working within them. 
And then the last thing I'll, I'll just describe, which is sweeping them all together into what we call being an imperfectionist. And instead of trying to figure out in advance every potential strategic move, is to just go ahead and make small moves as long as they are both low cost and reversible, which you help build your skills by doing, you help build a knowledge of the game and you help build assets for competing later. So think about when Amazon entered the um, consumer financial services business. They did that from 2007 to 2018. They could have used their balance sheet to buy a bank or a consumer finance company, but they didn't. They bought a team from a failed fintech. They licensed some IP over here. They made a small investment in a competitor to Square over here. All those look like puny moves. Most of those moves look like they failed, but they bootstrapped Amazon into a position where now it has a nearly 24% share of the, of the purchasing market in the United States. This is a remarkable thing done not by a strategic framework, done not by a big acquisition, but by accepting uh, failure as a way of learning into success, right? And then, you know, I, I'm, I work with Agonia. It's exactly the business philosophy of Yvonne Chouinard, who said, you know, you can study this thing forever. By the time you're done studying it, someone else already beat you there. Take the first step, see how it feels. I think that's why AI is so important as a servant, yeah. right? Because it zero to one takes as much time as one to a hundred. And it's so nice that it's just like SpaceX, right? Zero to one can be so quick now that we can get one to a hundred in a shorter amount of time than it used to take to get to zero to one, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, DM, sorry for interrupting you, brother. Uh, what do you got for us? No, no, you're good. Um, always happy to hear what you got to say. Um, you know, a lot of what you just said is interesting because it's like you, you're taking the creative brain and you're applying it to the business brain, which is one of the gaps a lot of us have, right? A lot of business folks just think in black and white linear terms and, you know, they don't want to think about the gray and, you know, it's, it, it, you know, you know, you know, this, you know, uh, supply and demand and just very simple concepts. And then you look at, you know, the book title, right? Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. I mean, that in and of itself, the relationship between strategy and uncertain times is, is not usually in sync. Uh, right. Usually when a certain times, all strategy goes out the window, people start thinking, of, you know, with emotion. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, just to pin, pinpoint it to uncertain times, um, how do you, and I know Dave's philosophy on this uh, very well. It's one of my things I use. But, you know, in uncertain times, um, what is the mindset that you should be applying? What are the three things that you should you should shift to to help come out in a better position than, we, than you were when you went to that certain time? So I think that like the most important thing is to do the thing that you just said we don't often do, which is to think probabilistically. So instead of thinking in black and white, it's going to work or it's not going to work, we think probabilistically. So every strategic decision that you make is a bet, right? This woman, Annie Duke, wrote this wonderful book. She's a poker player called Thinking in Bets. Every decision is a bet. And if you don't know the odds in a bet, you're the sucker. Right. So the very most important thing you can do when highly uncertain times is to think probabilistically. Most companies de develop plans as if nothing else could happen. You should be working with scenarios. The other thing I'll comment, which is uh, most companies think that all strategic work should be done up here and all operating work should be done down here. That's wrong. Those people down there are the people who actually are interacting with customers or potential customers. They're the ones who are seeing what competitors look like for real a lot of your strategy should be pushed right down to those people who are actually making decisions uh, in front of customers. 
right? And we don't do that. CEOs think they're the people who should be doing it. You know, li listening to you, this this has been Harvard Day as well, and uh, <laughs> which is fine with with, with me. Um, but you, you also previously were the CEO of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford. I uh, am doing a podcast today with my favorite. I, I ran Lee Steinberg, the sports agency, and people ask me who my favorite client is. And a lot of people expect me to say Warren Moon uh, because he was my business partner uh, as a Hall of Famer. But it's actually a young man that's uh, a Harvard grad as well. Uh, he's a brain surgeon. Um, he's also a Rhodes Scholar. And his name's Myron Roll, who you may be familiar with being on the trust. Yeah. And, um, you know, remarkable person. Yeah. Remarkable. And he, he's actually on my podcast today. Uh, wow. So he's been, been a dear hello. friend. I will. All the M's, uh, the, the six um, Roll brothers, the M's. Um, but board chair of Patagonia, you're on the nature co conservation, uh, the conservancy of European Council. You started, most people don't know that you were the founding CEO of Ticketmaster and City Search, partner at McKinsey and Company, um, through obviously an esteemed career, uh, you have seen a lot of uh, imperfectionists. And I was hoping that we could finish up by, because I really want to hit home on the radical humility yeah. side, because it's something that I lacked in my 30s. And people ask me, you know, man, how did you lose over $100 million and make it back? And it all revolves around humility that I went from a kid who told his dad that I'm going to be the best at everything, perfect at everything to a person who will tell you when people will say, oh, my God, I can't believe how much, you know. And I said, no, it's actually how much I don't know that has contributed to my success and yeah. the realization of that uh, through through this extraordinary career, the Myron roles of the world, uh, you know, give me an example of someone who uh, is the classic imperfectionist when it comes to being a world leader because you surrounded yourself with them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good question. And unfortunately, you know, you tend to find a lot more uh, arrogance, right? Rather, right. rather than, uh, rather than um, humility. Um, I, I, I think I'll leave you with the thought uh, that Yvonne Chouinard, um, the founder of Patagonia is the classic. Um, when he walks into a room, he doesn't tell you what the answer is. He asks you what the answer is. And, you know, when you come up with something, um, he's listening to you, right? This is, this is humility. And as we get older, when we're wiser, that should be our natural instinct, not, not what we often see. And I just, I love what you said. It's, be it's beautiful. I, I transitioned my own definition of a leader as well to an intelligent follower. And Shenard and Charles Kahn are extremely intelligent followers and we need more leadership in that direction. Uh, if you want to learn about the mindsets of curiosity, dragonfly eye, uh, current behavior, collective wisdom and imperfectionism, basically I, I uh, summarize them into radical humility. You have to read the book Imperfectionist. If you want to uh, live a life where you don't know what you don't know, combining faith, strategy, pragmatic business practices, there's over 30 new case studies in uh, decades of research with Charles Kahn that we can gather. He's paid the dummy tax for you. Uh, it's well worth the investment in buying the book in Perfectionist. Charles, no better way to finish up our 500th episode. Before I let you go, please promise me you'll come on the TV show. Uh, we, we have had the, the biggest names in every space, uh, you know, every, everyone from Hennessy to, you know, Ray Lewis, it does, does a Cameron Diaz, uh, but you fit, fit the mold for the TV show. So uh, I'd like to already invite you. Uh, we will be filming office hours 
in November uh, at the Win in Las Vegas. And we'd love to have you in person or virtually uh, for the Apple TV show office hours as well. Love to be there. Thanks so much, both of you. It's been wonderful being here. You got it. What Thank a great you. way to finish. Amazing guests today. How blessed are we, David Marino? Extremely blessed to start our morning with this. My cup is full and it's you know 9 a.m. Yeah, I'm jealous of you because you got more days and hours in the day left after that. Yeah, I just wish I would be seeing you more. We're coming in June, as you know, so keep me on your calendar. I it's wish I could see you in Indy. I wish I could be in Indiana with you guys. You're invited. We got a, a save VIP ticket always for you. Carte Blanche, I'll share my suite with you. I don't care. I'll sleep on the floor to have Dave Marino uh, come and visit me any day of the week. I want to thank Dave Marino especially. I want to thank uh, you very much for helping me start this whole mess. And uh, it's amazing how time flies. Thank you, brother. I will see you on our, our next uh, episodes. Uh, I miss you. That's all I got to say. Miss you, brother. See you soon. Love you. Congrats. All right, everyone. We have training today. It's Friday training on Thursday. What? That's right. We're going to be at VCon. So it's easier to do the stage theory training today. Uh, we have over 80,000 people registered for the training. So if you're not registered, email me. When you registered, you get a free signed copy of my book, paid for the book and shipping. So go email me, David. Oops, this way, David at dmelzer.com david at dmelter.com i want to thank Gigi, who i'll see in moments and minutes in indianapolis i'll be leaving for the airport after training to get there and we'll see you in indy we're going to do a meetup on saturday uh, in front of lucas at the peyton manning statue in front of lucas oil field so meet me at 9 30 in the morning in front of the peyton manning statue gotta love peyton uh there at lucas oil and in indy go ahead reach out david at dmelter.com i want to thank most importantly, our producers, once again, Raluca and Gigi, but I also want to thank you. Uh, without our community, we wouldn't get to 500 episodes. There wouldn't be these great guests. Uh, it, it's an amazing opportunity to be able to be a part of Office Hours, uh, the, the LinkedIn digital show, the TV show, the podcast. It's amazing what can happen if you enjoy the consistent, everyday, persistent, without quit, pursuit of your potential by being kind to your future self and doing good deeds. Thank you so much, everyone. Stay more interested than interesting. We'll talk to you soon.